Rather than having made prudent life choices all along, most of us tend to only seek healthful solutions once we've had a scare in the form of a diagnosis or event. This is HealthScape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. In this program, we'll show you the techniques, innovations, and holistic ideas that you can use to put yourself on the path to better health. Now, here is Dr. Trevor Campbell. Welcome to HealthScape. I'm your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell. Today, Dee Daniels, executive producer at Voice America, will again interview me, and we will discuss the nature, direction, and goals of HealthScape. Thank you, Dee, and over to you. Oh, thank you, Trevor. I'm really excited. Um, we had such a great time last um, show talking a little bit about HealthScape and uh, what it is you do and things like that. But I want to start again, first of all, before we go into HealthScape and about it, uh, just to kind of get a little bit on your background, who you are, what you do, and how you come to you know practice within this area. Okay, sure. Um, I was born in Cape Town, South Africa, where I attended school and qualified as a physician at the University of Cape Town. Now, my reason for following a medical career was primarily because I'm intensely interested in people rather than having any significant rescuer type aspirations, apparently unlike many others who enter the professions. That was not foremost on my mind, I have to say. I later realized that this also accounted for my early interest in languages. Initially, I worked mainly as a family physician with a sizable counseling component where I quickly learned uh, the power of motivation and persuasion, which is so important in every aspect of medicine, through showing people better possibility for their improved health outcomes. I didn't at all specifically set out to do much counseling. It's kind of happened, as do so many things in life. Um, and basically, uh, how it happened was I joined a very experienced practice I was uh, the newbie there, and uh, a lot of the physicians' patients would come to me with uh, issues to be discussed, personal health, uh, issues, life issues, rather than health issues. They liked their doctor. They went to them for the, that, and, and they would come to me for these other factors in life to talk. And I, I found it very strange because I'm thinking, well, I've been in med school and school the whole time. Like, I don't know too much about life. And yet they came with their doctor's blessing because a lot of doctors don't particularly want to do extra counseling. Obviously, you have to do a certain amount as a physician. Uh-huh. And one day I, I, I asked someone, I said, you know, I'm pretty new here. You've got a doctor whom you like. They're not on holiday. You could have seen them. And they, they said, no, but we're coming to see you. And, and I, I, I left it at that and said, they said to me, the reason is you've got the face that says, tell me about it. And that was a very <laughs> weird statement to me. I thought, well, what's wrong with my face? Why, why do I need people to tell me about things and other people don't? Anyway, I didn't want to overthink it. So I left it at that and I sort mm-hmm. of sat with it. I thought, well, if that's what they're seeing, I, I don't have much life experience or even medical experience at that stage. We see where it goes, and it changed a lot of things for me. I think it's what people perceive. Maybe just I was an active listener or something. So I became very experienced at that. And, of course, counseling doesn't pay as well as as normal fees in medicine. So some of the physicians were quite happy for 
for me to deal with that. Anyway, I worked mainly with a, uh, as a family physician with a sizable counseling component and where I quickly learned the power of motivation and persuasion through showing people better possibilities for improved health outcomes. And I, I didn't um, set out to do that, as I say. Um, I immigrated to Canada in 1996. I became interested in chronic pain management and I've seen it from a variety of aspects, family practice, occupational and disability medicine, multidisciplinary pain management and opioid reduction programs, and even as a medical director for private chronic pain management provider. Um, my, early, my early extensive experience in counseling, of course, stood me in good stead with the chronic pain because these conversations are almost always very sensitive and even tricky at times. And in counseling therapy, our choice of words makes a huge difference, believe me. Uh, I have lectured to physicians, of course, medical residents and various other healthcare professionals. I published a book in, called The Language of Pain, a self-help book for those with chronic pain and their caregivers, which was published in um, middle of 2019. I also have an online course of the same name. Right now, I'm focused mainly on the biopsychosocial approaches to chronic pain, whereby the psychological and social issues are dealt with together with the medical problems. Most pain experts agree that for recovery to occur, this approach, these approaches are essential, no matter what other treatments are provided. And over the last year, I've also worked in chronic pain and rehabilitation consultant capacity. So my interests are learning, hiking, cycling, travel, and great literature. That's basically it. Wow. Well, that's pretty impressive. I, I you know, I have to uh, hike a little bit more. I'm out here in um, Phoenix, uh, where there's a lot of great trails. So um, yes. that sounds like sounds like that's fun. But yeah. your with your bio um, background and experience leading you to this area. Uh, in pain management, chronic pain and such. What is it, uh, what is Healthscape about? Well, as the name suggests, the Healthscape is focused on holistic health approaches and practices rather than disease. Now, many other health and wellness podcasts provide information about various disease states. That's also important and there's a need for that. But firstly, I'm interested in discussing what you can do about increasing your health resilience and how behaviors and your environments, and this includes your external and your internal environment or your inner life, your hormonal status and so forth, affect your health outcomes. I also want to discuss the relatively new field of epigenetics, which is a huge breakthrough in biology. I mean, you know, we've had the... Uh, evolutionary theory, we've had uh, genetics and uh, the determination of the structure of, of the genes and so of DNA and so forth. But epigenetics is a major breakthrough as well, which uh, informs us about the factors um, that affect the way our genes basically work, more specifically how they allow for gene expression. Now, these effects aren't based on changes in the DNA sequence or that part of the chemistry, but on other processes. And in a nutshell, your genes are the hardware and your epigenetics can be seen as the software. So the genetics on their own don't have the final say. This is very important. 
But this topic is fairly complicated and requires a good deal of time to discuss, and so will be left to subsequent podcasts. But the very important thing is, I can't uh, stress this enough, is that for decades, what we had was a situation where our knowledge of genetics made us feel locked in or on rails when it came to our health, as if we couldn't do much about it. It was in our chemistry and, and just you've got to take what you got kind of thing. But in reality, this should remind us very forcibly that there's actually a great deal of factors that can influence health outcomes when it comes to behaviors, our environments, focus, and even our thought patterns. Should, should we care? You bet. I mean, we need to recognize this and take back control. Wow, that sounds interesting. So I guess, uh, would you say that it's more for healthy people than sick people? No, not at all. I would say that these same techniques and interventions that we use to build health resilience happen to be the same essential elements in the treatment of chronic physical and mental diseases, including chronic pain. So in Western Orthodox medicine, there have always been a stark, there has always been a stark contrast between the outcomes of uh, acute or sudden onset disorders, like surgical conditions, you know, appendicitis, heart attacks, um, asthma, trauma, and chronic diseases, where we do quite well with the acute or sudden onset diseases, but we don't really do that well with the chronic disease uh, types of conditions. And the outcomes lag far behind uh, acute or sudden onset diseases in terms of favorability of outcomes. And they're often actually mediocre and sometimes quite poor. Well, why, why would that be the case? Well, chronic diseases, of course, as the name implies, they don't happen quickly or overnight, but they take some time to develop. And they are usually based on or very much complicated by poor lifestyle choices, high stress levels, unhelpful behaviors, again, and thinking patterns. I'll say this line often during the talk. Most of our internal organs, for example, our livers and kidneys, have a huge what we call functional reserve built into them. So the capacity to do their work is way above what they probably need to do when we're young. So that the bad choices we make in our 20s, 30s, and 40s may not necessarily, necessarily reveal any deficit, even on comprehensive blood testing for many years. So by the time we do get to see a difference, these poor choices and habits that have already become entrenched in our life, that's what we do, the connection between poor lifestyle and ill health possibly has not even been made by the individual until they have an unwanted event like a heart attack or a chronic disease diagnosis. So that's when the payment is, uh, the, that's when the complications arrive years later, often. So orthodox medical treatment, as we know, if you think about one's own medical history, it's mostly centered around chemical solutions, you know, drugs, basically, and procedures, surgeries, injection therapies. Now, if you consider the brief physician appointments and the way the medical, quote unquote, business is structured, there's very short physician consultation times and inadequate time to educate and train patients in all these self-help interventions, let alone motivate them. Now, 
I feel this is important, but another lesser, maybe, but significant problem that is very rarely here being discussed is the frequent phenomenon of patient resistance towards having to put too much work in their own recovery. As the feeling is, after all, like I'm the one who's suffering and now I must do more work for myself when I'm feeling <laughs> ill. This comes across as counterintuitive and let's just say unattractive, right? Um, and especially so when contrasted with their situation in acute or recent onset diseases where the solution to the tre- was the treatment they were getting in form of prescription, medication, right? Mm-hmm. And in these simpler situations, all they had to do was follow prescription and not too much more other than follow the instruction and the basic advice. But these self-help interventions are essential to maximize the effect of the other treatments they receive and can make all the difference and be the game changer. But people don't fully understand this or appreciate or maybe don't believe it, even if it's explained to them. We wow. see on, t- yeah, on TV, you know, tell your doctor you need this. And, well, who mm-hmm. who are we talking to? Well, anyone right. who's listening and they don't all need specific drugs, you know. Um, so it's 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 pervasive. I'm not knocking the drug industry. I've said this many right. times before. They've provided um, you know solutions for people with severe chronic disease, multiple chronic to to survive mm-hmm. longer and to live better under those circumstances. So obviously, it's a major force in medicine, but right. it cannot be the be all and end all, in my view. Right. Right. So, so there are options there. Um, now when, with the podcast, um, you know, what can people expect, you know, is there like, um, uh, a range of topics that go beyond, uh, this, you know, part of things, uh, related to, you know, to treatment. Yeah. There's the health resilience and what you can do if you're already ill with chronic disease, the sort of Um, treatment maximization and in fact it's part of the actual treatment as well that people often don't get enough of and it's not often monitored enough in my view Um, and then there's the epigenetics because I think that is the the thing that really makes us think differently and should make us think differently over and above that obviously medicine is such a huge field there are other topics to be discussed and i would like to discuss some of what i call the big emerging issues that people have heard about but it's not sort of headline grabbing so they don't read about it so much or if they hear something at the airport and on the tv screen they basically will carry on reading their book rather perhaps because it doesn't sound like a big deal issue in medicine but they're very important and they're becoming increasingly important because they are driving up costs and not that we, it's all about the money, but I mean, we know what happens when you run out of money. So they are important. And there's also a huge amount of unnecessary, I would call suffering, but complication attached to it. So some of the big medical um, emerging issues that are facing us in healthcare, and I'll just name a few of them. I can't cover them all because they're merging all the time, I guess. And these range from conditions, and they sound a bit strange, overdiagnosis, overtreatment, and polypharmacy. Now, polypharmacy just means a lot of drugs, which is the common and dangerous situation, which we see mainly in the elderly, 
where they are treated with drugs on a symptom basis, like what's wrong, you know, nausea, uh, flatulence even, there's medication for that, um, you know, sweating and, and this sort of thing, rather than a disease basis. And they can end up on a dozen or even way more drugs. I've seen people on 40 drugs already, different drugs, many wow. of which they don't even need. So you can imagine the complication here. Who's got to sort this out when they when something goes wrong? Is it all the symptoms that are being treated, the medications for the symptoms they are receiving treatment? Those are the those could be a cluster of drug on drug adverse reactions. These drugs can interfere with each other, and it's complicated to tease it out. And over and above the actual side effects of the individual drugs. So the situation is time-consuming and quite expensive to, rec to rectify. It's often best we have to wean them off nearly completely, everything but the most essential, and start again using fewer medications that actually treat underlying disease rather than random symptoms. This is not a process that is undertaken. It's necessary, but we can't undertake it lightly, and it can be have its own dangers, and it should be done with a patient going into hospital and it being monitored, the whole process in hospital. It's a very necessary uh, uh, thing, but, but it's where too much of, of, of too much drugs is clearly really hazardous. Now, wow. overdiagnosis, on the other hand, is a bit more complicated to explain and probably better explored in a future podcast session. Mm -hmm. But it's something you can understand how it, how it started. The, it's born out of our desire as physicians to detect diseases as early as possible so we can get in there and treat it and have a better outcome. Obviously, in cancer, that's what we want to do. But heart disease, everything, we're trying to get in earlier so we can they have a better outcome. But there are situations where we medicalize. That's a word now. We medical. We make a medical condition of something that's common a common or an ordinary life experience, like burnout or severe fatigue, mm -hmm. which affects all of us. I mean, we take our job seriously and the problems at work, we sometimes require to perhaps take on more that is healthy for a limited period, hopefully not more than a limited period. Mm -hmm. And that could be manageable without treatment if approached in a different way. And that those conditions may never have caused long-term harm. I mean, who around hasn't been through some form of burnout or extreme fatigue or even just feeling jaded? It's not quite depression, but it's just feeling, you know, like not much, not very motivated and not very optimistic. Now, I'm not trying to say we shouldn't ignore, we should ignore depression. That's that's a different situation, but it's these conditions that are fairly common. Um, that happen to most people that we can approach with a bit of counseling or just a good two sessions about how they can change that with a plan. So before long, such a medicalized person becomes a patient. And suddenly they've been sometimes, honestly, almost shoehorned into a diagnosis that causes them great concern and detracts from their life. Now they're worried about this before they had fatigue and burnout. Now they've got anxiety, fatigue and burnout and they're worried all the time about this diagnosis that's following them around. It can also, of course, result from an expanded definition of a particular disease. As we know, the criteria for disease, what qualifies you for having a disease, keeps changing as we know more updated. We've seen, for example, in high blood pressure, the levels that required 
to put you into that bracket, not that anyone's in a rush to get into the bracket, but for treatment purposes, it used to be higher. And then we lower it all the time to, to get more people in because we feel that we may be missing a few that will go on to serious disease. So that's wow. something that people should be, should be aware of, not to, you know, well, just to be aware of it, not to look out for it or try and uh, uncover it themselves, but to be aware that that does exist. So getting a lot of drugs doesn't mean it's a thorough treatment necessarily. That's my point, right? Yeah. Now, another thing, obviously, is technology, which we're all becoming more and more aware of because it's more and more pervasive and some would say intrusive and some would say very helpful in our life. Um, technology is an important subject to track and keep abreast of. Medical delivery systems have changed rapidly in the last two years. And we've seen this huge, massive proliferation of virtual care delivery. You know, mm -hmm. the... The, the appointment on video. It's understandable when you consider we're presently living through a pandemic. And this has been a game changer, quite frankly, under the current circumstances, allowing many more people to be helped. Um, but it clearly can never be seen as a replacement for what we previously had, pre-COVID, for mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. Virtual care obviously works very well in simple problems, like you've got conjunctivitis, they can see your eyes red. An obviously infected finger, you can hold it up and it's like you can tell, you know, you're not right. necessarily being able to say what organism it is, but you, you can see um, our prescription renewals, counseling, reassuring, and all that. But it does have drawbacks and certainly isn't without risk. Now, what people don't always realize is in pre COVID times, when they went to a doctor, they said it was one of those urinary traction, uh, tract infections again but maybe their fever was higher this time and the doctor did a more thorough examination and they think, well, they didn't find anything. Some people may think this way. So what was that all about? As though it were not worthwhile. What the physician's trying to do is trying to exclude more serious, worrisome conditions that present the same way. And he's or she is doing tests to exclude that possibility. So the examination is very important in certain cases, to rule out that, hey, you better not just treat for uh, uh, a urinary tract infection. This could be some surgical condition or something really serious. Mm -hmm. So I don't see virtual, I'm just taking an example of virtual medicine as sort of bulldozing everything else out. We have to be mindful and, and doctors confront this all the time. They're doing a, a call, a video call, and they have to decide Maybe this person needs a visit as well. So um, virtual care works well in certain conditions, but again, like in life, not in others. Whatever one's feeling about it is, I can, I can bet it's here to stay and it will be expanded more likely than not. Now, other, other AIs, uh, uh, other technology is very important. The great potential benefits of many other technologies lie not only in lowering costs, but also in improving performance. For example, AI, artificial intelligence, can detect abnormalities on imaging, such as X-rays, ultrasounds, and CT scans, all that, significantly more accurately than whole teams of our best radiologists. So that's another incentive for using it. And um, AI is already here, and 
physician continuing education programs that keep us updated regularly feature it in their teaching schedules. So there's the cost benefit. Once you've bought, you have the AI that you don't pay them. But uh, and they are better in, in certain situations. And these situations, are the number of situations are increasing all the time. But here's the deal. Technology usually carries some risks or drawbacks as well as benefits, as is always the case with everything we use and do. Technology is broad. It can include health apps, wearables, and a profusion of personal health aids that will track your diabetes or your blood pressure and so on, and behavioral stuff, psychiatric disease. Uh, AI will continue to bring in sweeping changes, as with drugs and medication. As long as the benefits significantly outweigh the risks or drawbacks, we can assume that they will continue to be used. Wow. Wow. So from my perspective, this is interesting, though, to me at least. The more interesting and certainly the more challenging drawback is I worry about is how the patient-physician-therapeutic relationship will be affected. Now, this is not trivial because for centuries, trust in your physician and reassurance by the physician or therapist was an essential component in recovery. We generally, if we've been with them a while, we trust them. That's why we're still there, right? And I remember learning at medical school, it was our tutorial group and the, the, the person who was giving us the tutorial was a psychiatry professor. And we had just finished a year of studying drug dynamics, pharmacology. And he asked us, what is the best tranquilizer? And so we all sort of like third or fourth year or something. And we all offered our opinions about what the best tranquilizer is. And of course we were all wrong because the answer that was required was another sympathetic human being. Mm -hmm. Now, that's going to sound awfully naive and maybe sentimental to people, but as we speak, the main, the greatest tranquilizer for most people on earth today is still a sympathetic human being. And what he was saying is, don't just think because you know some uh, pharmacology that these are easy answers. It's knowing what is required and what modality in any situation. Mm -hmm. uh, so a teachable moment, I suppose. We also know from psychotherapy, and this is very important, that when you have psychotherapy, and people say, well, what is psychotherapy? It's basically talk therapy, mostly done by psych uh, psychologists, but social workers, uh, all kinds of uh, physicians, uh, in, in, or it can be a trained counselor in specific counseling. They, um, the most robust indicator of a favorable outcome. So when we decide, is this therapy that the person's getting likely to work or not, it's the perceived belief that the therapist has in their own treatment. That's the patient's perceived belief. That I'll say that again, the perceived belief that the therapist has in his own Treatment. Now, rightly or wrongly, the patient decides behind the scenes or by watching them yeah. carefully, is this person convinced of the efficacy or effectiveness of the treatment they're giving me? And if they feel this person is in right behind what he or she is saying, they get better. I mean, that's kind of, when I first heard that, made a huge impression on me. 
So wow. it didn't matter what type or subtype you were giving always. It was the perceived belief. So in my view, this aspect of recovery is far too easily blown off in our race to modernize, streamline, rationalize healthcare delivery. Algorithms, and it's particularly this pertains to AI, are enormously important, for example, in the ER, emergency room, when we confronted by a comatose patient, we are trained to think ABC, which just stands for airways, breathing, cardiac, cardiac being your pulse and blood pressure, do the pulse and blood pressure. And where it stands us in good stead, when in a narrow, in a harrowing situation, you know, everybody's pumped up, there's a lot going on, it keeps you on track. But as humans, however, we remain complex, somewhat fickle, and at times less than rational, quite frankly, when we are under pressure, anxious or ill. Um, so there's a lot to think about that AI in particular will be interesting. This is wow. with Dr. Trevor Campbell. We'll be taking a short commercial break. Are you looking for a path to better health rather than just avoiding disease? A good deal depends on your environment and overall behaviors. On Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell, we focus on the daily techniques that can help with chronic pain, addiction, trauma, and disease. You can take a more active approach to taking control of your health and your life. Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell can be heard every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Are you satisfied with your chronic pain treatment? Chronic pain experts agree that recovery can only occur when the psychological and social issues which help trigger and drive the chronic pain are treated along with the other problems. Medications, injection therapy, and a range of physical therapies may provide temporary relief of symptoms, but they don't actually address the root causes that drive the chronic pain. I'm Dr. Trevor Campbell, a chronic pain consultant and author of The Language of Pain, a self-help book for those struggling with chronic pain. Add this type of therapy to your existing treatment plan and experience the difference. Get your copy of my book, The Language of Pain, on Amazon. And for further direction, there's also the Language of Pain online course available on my website, www.trevorcampbellmd.com. Act now to take back your life. You are listening to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. If you have a question or comment about the show, please send an email to host at trevorcampbellmd.com. Now back to the show. Wow. Dr. Campbell, it's really interesting as we talk about AI because that's, you know, obviously... Uh, taking part in almost every aspect of of business these days, including healthcare. Um, it sounds like there's a lot to be concerned about, you know, uh, with all this. Um, yeah, you're right to a degree, but you know, it's also not all bleak. I mean, the way we develop, it's inevitable that everything we do will change. And I would just say there's a lot to consider. I have concerns, obviously, just having done this much time in in the profession. But I, I'm not. I'm not pessimistic. Um, the Healthscape podcast will be educational, and will surely stimulate reflection and debate. Always a good thing, in my opinion. The more we know about something, the more we can question, anticipate, and frankly, the better we can prepare. 
discussion, debate, and even argumentation are not only the lifeblood of science, but also its most reliable testing ground or crucible, if you like. For example, no one would suggest to Einstein or the physicist Niels Bohr that their protracted heated arguments over many years with each other made any one of them a lesser man as a scientist. So HealthScape's aim is to educate and hopefully ask more helpful questions. Wow. Going back um, to the health resilience part of this, what benefits can your audience expect? Tell me a little bit about that. Well, commonly, you know, when we hear about health matters and we hear about the importance of diets and exercise, as if these almost are the only determinants of health. And obviously, while they're certainly very vitally important, you know, so is almost everything we do on a daily basis. Um, but attention has to be focused on other areas as well, such as, and these all affect your health in great ways, fulfilling relationships, social connectivity, spirituality, daily diligence regarding behaviors, and even our thinking patterns, which, by the way, is not as complicated as it may sound. Even meaningfully, meaningful work has long been strongly associated with better health outcomes. It's been known for a long time that an unsupportive spousal relationship can be a greater factor in a cardiac event like a heart attack than, uh, you know, um, severe diabetes or hypertension. We tend to think of that as non-medical. That's a domestic problem or social problem but it's also your health problem. Now, for some, this may sound quite out there, quite frankly, because they believe that physicians should firstly offer chemical solutions. That's almost, I think, been enculturated. But the importance of health-associated behaviors and the epigenetics showing us what can happen uh, to favorably affect our health or recovery illustrates that medication is not the only way to affect enormous enormous change and confer benefits. Um, excessive stress, stress levels, for example, are a major factor in about 80% of diseases. Chronic inflammation is also a component of most chronic diseases, but the relationship between the two remains murky and has yet to be defined. When I talk about um, the epigenetics, and I talk about health-associated behaviors. The important distinction I want to make is it takes a lot of work in science to show what we call, call causality. Something causes something. So a lot of the time I use associated benefits because we've got this from clinical or uh, our work experience that these are helpful, but we haven't necessarily necessarily shown that they are epigenetic, that they are causal. But for me, the big pointer towards doing something and, and performing these health habits and due diligence is that we see how genes can be easily affected by other circumstances. So it's a great segue into the health-associated behavior category. Um, 
So it's what whatever's been said is backed by vast clinical experiences, experience, you know, worldwide, multi-center, that sort of thing. Wow. That sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> well, on first hearing, perhaps, but you know, a health plan can be greatly simplified. In fact, any life plan, whether it be weight loss, smoking cessation, even physical fitness, uh improving physical fitness, the outcome is mostly dependent on an individual, quote unquote, buying into the program. If one is hesitant or skeptical, then it's rather better to wait and become convinced or, you know, then then go in uh, and and sort of half-baked effort, if I can use that term. The vital question is, are you going to go in boots and all, so to speak, or are you doing it to please or pacify or shut your spouse, physician, or other members of the family up, basically, which we also see. People are often doing things because, I mean, I get, you know, they feel they're being um, nagged, basically. Mm. You, you got, the, yeah, and I come to that, you know, I'll come to that later in the, in, you know, um, in subsequent podcasts where how do you build in motivation um, into a plan Mm. and there are ways you can do it we don't always need a hurrah chorus or expect we shouldn't always expect it from other people to constantly goad we we have to be self-starters as adults within our own health not take our health in our own hands completely and obviously we we get guidance we get advice but a lot depends on on what we do so um everyone i mean look at the health plan now everyone has access to information in fact in my book the language of pain i i warn people about too much research on the internet and sometimes people are shocked well isn't more information good yes but the right information because it's well known that uh, the British did research on this some time ago that when people research on the internet, they they tend to choose articles that support their original contention or what they believe in. It just so it kind of like builds and snowballs on what they already believe. And there is a lot of information out there that's suspect, and people don't necessarily know that this institute or that institute is maybe not the best source and so forth. So the idea is to get the information which we need. We get that through help for your physician and, and asking questions and some insights as well. And then together with a physician or, or the specialist or whomever, work up a, work out a treatment plan. I'm talking about the self-help uh, uh, practices that mm-hmm. is doable and realistic, you see. Um, so you get a personalized health uh plan but even with the right information we can become stuck in our treatment and um and yeah life because lifestyle changes are seldom easily made you know we have to find the motivation from within and occasionally others at at a crucial time carry us through but experience shows that a fall off in effort may happen all too quickly and i like to from my my uh, work in chronic pain, I try and build in some motivation and it can be done. Um, we must first, one of the things is we all, we are all inundated with information. I've had patients come to me, is coffee healthy or not? 
Because we heard it's wonderful for this, but then bad for that. Then it's reversed, and then it's right. neutral to both. And the same with the occasional moderate alcohol. It's now no amount is safe. This is what the current wisdom said. So it's very confusing even for physicians, and it depends on the study type and the quality of the study and so So we are inundated with a, a lot and even for healthcare workers, it is challenging. So simplicity in any plan is um, is very important. We have to also remember that most of us, if we found that coffee is somewhat bad for us, we'll probably not stop drinking it. Um, you know, it's like there's kind of factors, well, <laughs> our culture and our habits and, and what we enjoy, basically, or we think right. uh, we need in the morning, right? But... Um, you know, if we keep it simple, you're more likely to do something, especially if you have a chronic disease, if you know, well, this is, they're not asking me to do too much here. Simplicity means you can stay in the pace, so to speak, for mm -hmm. for some durability, for some durable time. And um, But we've got to be cautious as well. We can't simplify it to the point where we dumb it down and make it too easy. Uh, and leave out important features, you know, then it detracts from the effect. But we also have to remember that people with chronic disease, especially I see this in chronic pain, are physically deconditioned, low energies, poor sleep, and other comorbidities. But simplicity in itself is very motivating because they can feel very easily overwhelmed. And it's one of the reasons I've found they drop out. They just say, it's too much, my head's spinning, right? And then secondly, we have to convincingly explain the plan that it is not only necessary, but vitals. vital. In other words, we should give an almost watertight rationale, or at least a very good one, as to why this plan must be regularly adhered to. Um, so, I've, you know, the again, a short consultation time, I've met people who gave up on their chronic pain treatment when I followed them up with CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy um, sessions, they said that on a bad day when they had pain, they were saying to themselves, why am I doing this again? They couldn't remember the rationale. Or <laughs> uh, Now, it could be they were, they were distressed to that point. I'm not saying it was never explained to them. But they were kind of describing a um, situation where they were operating in vacuo, like no nothing to hang on to. So a rationale is... When things get to going, get tough. Why am I doing this again? Okay, I know I'm going to carry on. <laughs> then we got to provide some context so that when they're feeling tired and vulnerable, they do not still, they do not feel that they're merely going through the the motions. And there's ways of doing this. And again, context, explaining context, and you're not going to do it once or twice. It's repetitive. Uh, patients are not academics. They're not. It's like many physicians who are used to absorbing a lot of information because they have to, to survive. And, you know, you have to be patient and it has to be repeated. And then lastly, the patient, the plan needs to be customized so that it can be personalized. Everyone's circumstances, history and needs and characters different and must be considered. Another way of personalizing is offering more flexibility in the choices of the various categories. So if you're looking at relaxation techniques, don't just push one thing like um, yoga. I mean, some people do very well with that or mindfulness. I'm not picking on any discipline. I'm just saying there are mm -hmm. people who, who just don't do well with a certain thing. Then change it to something else as long as it lowers their stress. 
Right. And so flexibility is a thing. And um, uh, they and other, other thing is they should be part of the decision-making. Mm-hmm. They should be part of the decision-making because if they're not, it's, it's, it's doomed to... Um, to failure. Now, I can just tell you uh, uh, an anecdote quickly that's quite interesting. Um, I was in Turkey a few years ago, and I visited the Eshlepion, which is an ancient healing place. Uh, mm-hmm. It's now near a town called Pergamum uh, in, in, in Turkey, and it is in the ancient Greek times. And those days, the physicians were the priests. The priests were psychiatrists, but they were physician healers. And people would come when they were feeling not right or they were going down. They'd be assessed and um, they would have to walk down a long tunnel with, uh, so in the, in the ground. And at the top, there were air vents where the, where the priests and the uh, healers were, were giving them positive affirmations. Like you can do this. You've got this one. You're going to, it's going to succeed. Anyway, the story was that they would have to sleep in the temple at night and then they would dream. And, of course, the dream happened to be interpreted by the, um, by the priests or the psychiatrists, no doubt. And, but the point is, from all accounts, there was improvement because they felt they were part of the treatment plan. That's my rationale for this. Now, our tour guide happened to be in Turkey, a lot of people are into the standard of tour guide is quite high in the sense that they have to know a lot about the culture or the history. And she had a master's degree in history. And people, the reports were, I mean, obviously ancient reports that they actually got better because they could believe in their treatment. They were part of it. It was their dream after all. Interpreted by someone, I'm sure it wasn't very consistent, even within the same person. But never mind, I sometimes think they had a good handle on the psychology. And there was gyms and spas and hot springs and stuff like that, and they would have this whole routine. But we tend to, I've had patients say to me, you know, I saw my notes the other day, and I couldn't, I had to check to see if they got the name right, because I couldn't believe they were talking about me. And this went back a few months, and she was really upset about it. And I had to explain, it took about a half an hour, that we as physicians are under pressure and duty to write in a way that colleagues can understand. Although it's about the person, it's really for the benefit of other treatment professionals, for our regulatory body that can stop us practicing if they deem us unfit, for the legal profession who may make and, you know, go on to investigate. So it sounds like that in a complicated uh, uh, situation to anybody and it's only when they've been through that that they often tear up and they said well I didn't know all that I just thought this person may uh, kind of twisted it in their way I said no there's a way of saying things in medicine they may not use your words mm-hmm. but they basically um, they have they've got these obligations over and above to you I mean they want you to get better but they have to satisfy like the the duty to other physicians, to the regulatory bodies, to the law, uh, you know, and so on. And what I used to do from an early stage, because it I found it 
it it improved bonding. I would often, if a patient used a very unusual term, I would write it in my notes as a description, mm-hmm. three words in inverted commas. And often if I saw them much later, they I used the term, do you remember that? I said, yeah, I, when you said it to me, it, it seemed to have a lot of impact. And I kept, I put it in the record. But it's a, it's a way of feeling heard. Now, it may look a bit strange in a report that you would choose uh, uh, that descriptor that they use, but it's in inverted, in quotation marks. It's things like this, Dee, that go hidden in the business of medicine. Uh, Obviously, we can't coddle people. These costs don't allow, and we're not doing them a favor if we do. But it's these small things that can affect people for years, and an introverted patient might never even tell anyone about their disappointment and distaste for that when actually nothing, it's a double tragedy because nothing wrongfully was done. Mm -hmm. So we have to be very careful. It's a whole different world out there. So I guess D in summary, healthscape will cover some of the concepts, ideas and conversations that cannot easily take place in the context of the physician office visits. And more often than not, they simply don't happen. And I can see why it's it's understandable. I'm not blaming anyone. In chronic pain, I had the luxury of time, which I can tell you is astonishingly beneficial to both therapist and and uh, patient. Mm. So, however, these concepts I talk about remain important and greatly affect our anxiety levels, patients' anxiety levels, and the way we mm-hmm. they view their treatment plans, and ultimately. whether or not they're going to achieve some sort of favorable recovery. And then more importantly, again, this is where I started. This is where I'd like to end off towards um, healthscape will create an awareness and hopefully an appreciation for the significant personal power we still wield, even in significant chronic disease regarding the daily modifications we can undertake in terms of where we put our focus, behaviors, and thinking patterns. We should never, ever underestimate the benefit that can be derived from the accumulation of several modest or even small advantages over time as as an added boost to to our existing plan, whatever other treatments we are getting, and that can lead to way superior outcomes. And of course, we know this because the very same ongoing process, the accumulation of small advantages applies not only to health, but in life itself. Wow. Fascinating. So it's an interesting field, but it's a great model for the way we function in extremists. I think with chronic pain, you're dealing with a disorder or disease that's complicated. It's a brain disease, but it highlights a lot of um, because it's a subjective, it's mainly subjective. Um, well, there's other changes too. There's, there's sleep disorders and stuff like that. But right. you can focus on what is going on. I mean, in respiratory diseases, you're following respiratory uh, tests, you blood tests and all this kind of thing. And your focus, I suspect, I mean, other people may well disagree, but if you you have to look at so many compartments of uh-huh. of activity that I think cr- chronic pain is you and the person and what's going on in their head, uh, their perception of pain, their interpretation of pain, 
the right. feeling of being wronged and so forth that makes you very acute. And you realize one of the biggest problems with medicine is we don't have the time. We aren't allowed the time in the system. It's right. too expensive or whatever or not allowable. I don't know. But you need time to do complicated work. That's all I it can say. It seems like, yeah, that definitely seems like the case. And I think uh, today it just seems like more people are taking an active role in wanting to be a part, you know, of their treatment, like you mentioned. And I think that's important, too. Yes, absolutely. No, that, that that's good. There is an awakening. And, of course, integrative medicine, holistic and, you know, what we've seen, um, also costs are escalating. I know it's not patient, not yes. so focused on it. But, I mean, you know, costs are important to keep something going. That, that's all I can say. Wow. So that's very much um, my um, intentions for the uh, podcast. It's going to be a kind of hybrid mix of things. Um Certainly things I find very interesting, which I do believe are important. Mm -hmm. And hopefully other people will feel the same about. I'm sure, I'm sure they will. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure the um, uh, audience will find great value as it relates to health. And these types of shows are uh, often do very well, you know, on our network because people are looking for answers to things. Like you said, they can't always get it in the doctor's office and, mm -hmm. you know, do the time and practice and all those other things that happen. Right. So um, it's all about, it's all about motivation, understanding barriers. I often say to patients in chronic disease, I said, we're going to look for the good practices and we're going to try and keep out of the way of a solution because we do bring communication barriers into it. Um, and we must be mindful of that. We can bring into mm -hmm. the social dynamics and stuff like that. That should be clear. We should clear the playing field as much as possible. It does make a difference. Wow. And it's sobering. It puts us, we come to learn our scale that way, and, you know. Mm -hmm. And that, that makes sense. Thank you, Dee, again. Um, and it brings us to the end. You have been listening to Healthscape on Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Um, and Dee was the interviewer, executive director of Voice America. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. We hope you'll join us again next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time or listen anytime on demand on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a healthy week.